This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. Tonight and um, in the coming weeks, I'd like to clarify some of the kind of basic elements of our Zen practice and tradition. By the way, sound okay? Okay, very good. Of course, everyone knows that the core of Zen is Zazen, this meditation practice that we practice every time we get together. And for Zazen, we need you know, very little intellectual understanding in order to practice it. One of our great teachers said, just concentrate your efforts single-mindedly. And that in itself is negotiating the way. And yet, intellect can really help us engage in practice. As long as we don't get too caught up in it, as long as we don't let it blind us to all the other elements of practice. For human beings to practice completely means to practice with all of our efforts and talents, put our whole selves into it. And that includes our intellect and our understanding. But in addition to understanding, we also have to practice letting go of understanding as well, especially if it's interfering with us being right here, right now in this moment. Zen, as you may know, is part of um, the tradition that comes from India, China, Japan to America. And um, we're part of the Mahayana tradition. Mahayana means great vehicle. It's one of the two main branches of Buddhism that have come uh, through time. And of course, Zen emphasizes meditation. In fact, the word Zen is the way the Japanese pronounce the Sanskrit word jhana, which means meditation in Sanskrit. And in Zen, we focus on meditation, but not exclusively. We focus on trying to um, realize and express our awakening in the activities of everyday life. And also, from the point of view of wisdom, Zen tends to emphasize Buddhist teaching about non-self, about interdependent co-arising, about the interbeing of all creatures. In the Heart Sutra that we chanted um, this evening, and is chanted in Zen temples around the world. It's actually a condensation and a distillation of those teachings about what we call in the Heart Sutra, Prajna Paramita, transcendental wisdom, the wisdom of um, how everything depends on everything else. And uh, 
There are thousands of pages in the sutras about Prajnaparamita. The Heart Sutra, this one page, is a condensation of all of them. And you might think that that would be like making it accessible. But uh, usually when people encounter the Heart Sutra the first time, it doesn't seem all that accessible. Um, because it's really addressing itself to so much of Buddhism that it's hard to understand. One of the things that Heart Sutra um, takes up is really the other mainstream of Buddhism, which was called the Theravada. Theravada means um, the path of the elders. And uh, it's considered to be original Buddhism. It's unclear, really, did Mahayana really develop after the Theravada? The, the scriptures that we have from both traditions, the oldest ones we have from both traditions, are really about the same age. The paper is about the same age. So we don't know, really, uh, how these traditions developed. Did they develop kind of in parallel to each other? Did they develop one after another? We don't know. But you can maybe say that the Theravada tradition um, emphasizes meditation as we do, emphasizes the precepts, the, uh, the path of ethical conduct quite a bit. And uh, it emphasizes the wisdom of uh, impermanence, non-self, and suffering. You may know that all of Buddha's teachings, the Mahayana and the Theravada, originally came to us because monks memorized what Buddha taught. And they recited these teachings together for almost 500 years before any of it was written down. And uh, I used to think, why did they do that? You know, think of everything that could be lost in 500 years. But it was really important that we did it this way. Teaching, Buddhist teaching, only makes sense in the context of practice. And it would be easily misunderstood if it were presented in a way that was divorced from practice. So for centuries, because the teachings were not written down and could not be uh, uh, disseminated independently. They could only be given by people who were practicing the way daily, usually in a monastic context. So for centuries, teaching and practice were passed on together, warm hand to warm hand. And by doing it that way, Buddhism escaped being reduced to a philosophy. And it was authentically transmitted. Did all the monks memorize Buddha's words exactly the way he spoke them? Well, I don't think so, <laughs> right? That would, that would be a stretch. But did they learn the practice? Did they learn the, uh, the principles? Uh, and even maybe 
express themselves with some of the same words that Buddha used? Yes, I'm sure that's what happened. So think of the debt that we owe to them. All those people who maintained the practices that Buddha taught and who chanted his teachings. So in our Zen liturgy, when we chant Heart Sutra or whatever we chant, we're announcing that we're a part of that tradition. Part of the tra tradition of practitioners who memorized and passed on the teachings. Now we have chants because we do write things down. But Heart Sutra is not that difficult to memorize. And uh, really, it's interesting to do because it's interesting to feel this is how teachings came to us. People internalize them and they express them. So in our services, we, we take another step in maintaining a very ancient tradition. Enchanting is its own kind of meditation. It's really one pointed presence. We're just here with the sounds that we're chanting. It's not even important that we understand what we're chanting. Sometimes we chant in Japanese and very few of us understand what, what we're chanting. But it's that presence, it's that presence that's not putting self forward at all, but that is actively trying to harmonize with all beings. This is what maintains Buddhist teaching and practice even up to this day. So these teachings really do come to us from long ago and far away. The oldest teachings from the Theravada tr tradition were uh, the oldest copies we have of them were written in a language called Pali. And Pali has no alphabet of its own. It's, it's entirely a spoken language, as you would expect if the monks were just chanting, not writing this down. When these things were written down, they were written in the language of the people that they were being transmitted to. So phonetically, you know. So when we read Pali, we read it in Roman text, just the way we would read any other language, French or German. But the Pali texts are so old and so interesting because they bring us all kinds of imagery and parables um, that we're just not familiar with. And this was how Buddha taught. He taught in uh, by giving these examples of, of his wisdom. Buddha's main teaching was that he wanted to relieve suffering. And he thought that it was necessary to understand the process that creates suffering. 
So he gave us many metaphors about how we create suffering and how we make our suffering worse. I'll read you a passage. When an untaught person is touched by a painful bodily feeling, he worries and grieves, he laments, he beats his breast, weeps and is distraught. He thus experiences two kinds of feelings, a bodily and a mental feeling. It is as if a man were pierced by a dart and then following the first piercing, he is hit by a second dart. So that person will experience painful feelings caused by two darts, the mental, uh, the bodily and the mental. You may have run into this teaching about the two darts. The second dart is our reactivity to our pain and distress. It's interesting that Buddha really presents it that the first dart, bodily pain, for instance, is inevitable. This is just what it is to be a human being. It's even inevitable for Buddhas. Next week, uh, we have the anniversary of Buddha's death. He died when he was 80 years old. And uh, soon before he died, he did. He said, my body is like an old cart that's just held together with straps. He said he was only comfortable when he was in deep meditative concentration. And that other, otherwise, other than that, he had pretty constant bodily pain. He was 80 years old. He was living in the forest. He was sleeping on the ground. So Buddha was talking not about that, the first dart, the pain that we can't do anything about, but the second dart, our reaction to the pain that can amplify the original hurt. He said that uh, um, when we have a painful feeling, we resist it and we resent it. And then we're really in trouble because we're trying to deny, we're trying to push off something that is inevitable. That is that these human bodies and minds will have pain. And we might even call this the third dart, that we're, we're so resistant to experiencing an unpleasant sensation that we're always tense trying to guard ourselves against it. We become fixated on trying to find a pleasure that will ease every discomfort. And this in itself creates suffering. I'll give you another example of um, 
what Buddha taught about how we deal with difficult things. This is a parable that uh, we don't run into very often in our day and age. It's a parable about the lepers and the charcoal pit. Suppose there was a leper covered with sores and infections, chewed up by worms, picking the scabs off the openings of his wounds with his nails. And suppose he approached a pit of glowing charcoal to cauterize himself. So uh, you probably don't know how charcoal is made, but it's made by putting a lot of wood in a very deep pit so the wood doesn't get a lot of oxygen. It, it burns with the minimal oxygen. And so it doesn't turn into ash, but it turns into charcoal. You all know what charcoal looks like. And leprosy, you know, was a terrible skin disease. But the intense heat of these burning charcoal pits, which must have been really hot, made the lepers feel better. It kind of overwhelmed the tormenting sensations that they have that were caused by their leprosy. So Buddha said that this man's friends and his companions and his relatives would take him to a doctor. And the doctor would concoct a medicine for him. And thanks to the medicine, he would be cured of his leprosy. He would be well and happy, free, master of himself, going wherever he liked. Then suppose that two strong men seized hold of this man by both arms and dragged him to the pit of the glowing charcoal. What do you think? Would he twist his body every way in order to, to um, uh, remove himself from that? And the person that Buddha was talking to said, oh, yes, indeed. Why? Because fire is painful to the touch, very hot and scorching. And Buddha asked, well, what do you think? Is the fire painful to the touch, very hot and scorching only now? Or was it also like that before? Both now and before, it was painful to the touch, very hot and scorching. It's just that when the man was a leper, covered with sores and infections, chewed up by worms, picking the scabs off the openings of his wounds with his nails, his faculties were impaired. Which is why, even though the fire was actually painful to the touch, he had a skewed perception of it as pleasant. I want to make two points about this. One is, I want you to notice how this is written. Did you hear all the phrases that were repeated again and again, like uh, painful to the touch, hot and scorching, occurs like three or four times. And uh, 
A leper covered with sores and infections, chewed up by worms, picking the scabs off the openings of the zooms with his nails, occurs exactly the same several times during this. These sutras were memorized. When we write something, you know, our tendency is, well, we'll say it one way the first time, but if we refer to it another time, we'll say it a little different. And third time, even a little different still, etc. We, we vary these things. That's our style of writing. But that's not a good style if you're going to memorize it. If you're going to memorize it, it's best that if you're talking about one thing, you say it one way. And every time you talk about that thing, you say it the same way. So in this way, monks help themselves remember the teachings to pass them. So I want you to notice that. But I also want you to notice kind of the moral of this tale. When we're suffering, we can do all kinds of things that are actually quite harmful to us. But in the moment, they seem to relieve the suffering. And so we turn to that. When a person is cured of his illness, he can see that his efforts to relieve his suffering actually caused pain. Buddha taught that we come to crave experiences that will at least feel like they're relieving pain, even if they do harm, even if they are dangerous to us. And we have examples of this. We don't have leprosy and charcoal pits anymore. But we have, you know, drugs, alcohol, lots of things that humans turn to to relieve pain that seem to do it, except it's very clear that they cause more pain and more suffering. And this is true for us, not just in terms of addictions, but in how we deal with the adversities we face in the world. Take Israel after October 7th. To those who are in pain and fear and grief, rage and violence is a relief. An experience of grief and weakness is superseded when we take a stance of power and retaliation. And following this formula, instead of experiencing the pain and the sadness of the death of loved ones, instead we become bringers of death. When we're tormented by rage, harming others actually seems like a good idea. If we've been able to cure ourselves of our rage, we look at the idea of going to war and we think, that's not a good idea.
standing on the, on the verge of a pit of burning charcoal can actually seem sensible when we're tormented by rage or illness. When we're assailed by fear, we have no capacity to reflect on our rage. We have no capacity to discern the sources of the fear that we have. Even though it would be very beneficial to do so, it's not accessible to us. In the midst of anger and rage, because terrible things have been done to us, we are least likely to be able to be self-reflective. Why? Because our rage and our harmful action are actually palliative care for our illness. They make us feel better. So when Buddha came and he talked about suffering and the ubiquity of suffering and the path that leads to suffering and the things that we do that cause suffering in a, an attempt to cure our illnesses, he asked us, are we ready to recognize our illness for what it is? Last week, uh, Tim sent me an article about uh, reintroducing wolves in Colorado. It's really good. One of the best things about um, the article was uh, a, a bit of a conversation with an opponent of wolf introduction. This man was an advocate for wolf hunting. And he disclosed the purpose of taking that stance. He said, the aim of the game is making snowflakes cry. Do you see what he's saying? The name of the game is to harm those liberals who want to introduce the wolves. The name of the game is not, should we have wolves or not? The name of the game is hurting people out of some hurt of our own. It's like owning the libs, you know? It's just too bad, you know, that the wolf is an instrument for that. But in our country, the right hates the left, and the left hates the right. Why is our anger so enduring? It's enduring because our underlying illness is persistent. We have the illness of needing to avoid any unpleasant experience. We have the illness of needing to preserve our self-importance in all situations. We have the illness of protecting 
the unequal distribution of wealth and warding off fairness. We should take up this question. What is our illness? What is the suffering behind the rage that we experience so often towards each other? You know, we're not rageful towards each other in this room, but I bet we could point to people that we are rageful for, towards. What is the illness that makes that seem like a good idea? This is the question that Buddha set out to answer and the question that he wanted to teach you about. And actually what he taught was the tools that would let us discover the answer for ourselves. What is our illness? Well, in order to discover that, we have to get beyond our reactivity. We have to get beyond our knee-jerk response to make ourselves feel better without even knowing what it is that's making us feel so bad. Buddha taught, taught us the tools that would allow us to discover this. And so that's why we gather to practice Zazen and to practice mindfulness. We practice these meditations, these uh, practices that allow us to pause, that allow us to see without being stirred up by what we see, that allow us to see more deeply than we normally do in our daily life. We gather for Zazen and we practice mindfulness because we need to try to tell the difference between medicine and a burning pit of charcoal. We need practices that help us to calm our reactivity and to see it for what it is. And we should use these practices to help us turn towards our own suffering, to understand it more deeply, and towards the suffering of others to relieve it more thoroughly. A couple of weeks ago in uh, one of our study groups, uh, Bill, you, you, you made a really interesting point. Bill said that the Bodhisattva of compassion who is said to hear the cries of the world. The Bodhisattva of compassion does not ignore the cries of Maga. Avalokiteshvara, the one who hears the cries of the world, does not fail to respond to the cries of living beings who are caught up in wrong views. Because if that was the case, we would all be in deep trouble. We are all far from having perfect wisdom. Sometimes, you know, we can see as, as if through a glass darkly. We're doing pretty good if we can do that.
Buddha's effort was to teach us to relieve suffering in ways that don't cause more suffering. So I'll say that's one reason that we gather here tonight.